Tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy Illyri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Bonjour Tim, how are we? I'm very well thank you. I'm I'm in slight mourning that the Olympics is over if I'm honest because that has Me taken too. up a good deal of my time of late but also yeah. it's probably about time I got off the sofa and did some movement myself so. No, gonna have to actually do some work this week now, there's no Olympics to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what am I drinking? Do you know what? I'm ashamed. Well, I'm not ashamed actually. I'm I'm just drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> <gasps> that <gasps> is an absolute shocker. Explain yourself. No, I've had a very long, very busy weekend. Um, I went for a little trip down to West Wales for four days. Um, me, Chris, and we took our dogs. We were staying in a tiny little shepherd's hut, which was pretty much the size of my car. Um, as you know, my dogs snore a lot, so I have we've not heard had it many sleep. a time, many a time on this podcast. We've witnessed yeah. that. So I've not had really more than two hours sleep a night <laughs> for the last four nights. <laughs> so I just needed a cup of tea. <laughs> Fair enough. Um. So it's not linked at all to what I'm thinking about, but I am thinking of Mesopotamia. Well, 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 before I show you what I'm drinking in homage to that, because I am drinking something in homage to that, well, sort of, you see, I want to share an image with you because for this research, um, I've done a lot of trawling through the British Museum archives. Now, this is stuff that I've kind of, I've, I've seen before and I enjoy anyway. It's a period of history I find really fascinating. I go to the British Museum a lot and spend time in this section. So I thought, I bet I can find some, like, proper source artefacts to help inform our conversation. And when I encountered this one that I'm sending to you on the chat right now, I thought, this has to set the scene for this conversation. So why don't you talk us through um, this clay image? That I've just sent you. Oh. <laughs> what, what do you think you're seeing there? Um, I'm going to say one word, and that word is going to be unsolicited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is a woman, I don't know even, she's filleting something. <laughs> There's something in her mouth. I can't quite work out what it is. It looks like a vase or an urn. <laughs> so she's sucking off an urn. She might be vomiting, actually. That might be projectile. <laughs> All the while she's bent over said urn and there's somebody stood behind her doing something like scratching her back or something. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, I mean... yeah. Right. Right. Well, it's a val. I tell you what, it's a valiant attempt. Um, so here's my drink. I'm drinking beer, obviously, because we're talking about Mesopotamia and they love beer. 
and I'm drinking my beer through a straw. Aww. Because that's something they also did. The image you're looking at is a woman drinking beer from a large Aww, earthenware pot. <laughs> large earthenware pot through a straw. But you are partly right because she is also being done from behind. Yeah. It's a man I've having never... sex with a woman drinking beer through a large straw from in can the I, pot. Can I just add, because my mind isn't always in the gutter. <laughs> Why has she got her entire hand wrapped around the straw? <laughs> That's, they were that quite was big... misleading. <laughs> they were quite big. <laughs> sure. They're quite big straws as well. And I guess the artist wanted to show that she was, you know, giving it a, a good grip. She's probably like holding it as well to steady herself, I would imagine. <laughs> so why is she getting done from behind while she's having a beer? Because we are in ancient Mesopotamia. And those are the things they liked to do. They I liked beer. Like it they here. liked they liked beer, sex, and bread. Oh my god! <laughs> is, these are the main things you need to know about Mesopotamia. Yeah, I was born so I in the I'd wrong you... place at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. So I thought, yeah, I'd show you that image that um, the British Museum have. I've got a couple more images to go as well. I should clarify first of all what Mesopotamia is. Uh, Mesopotamia means literally means between the rivers so specifically the rivers tigris and euphrates which means that in today's terms we would mostly be in iraq and also parts of iran turkey syria and kuwait Um, but we wouldn't generally refer to the people as mesopotamians because what that does is it encompasses a few different civilizations So we've got the Sumerians and we've got the Arcadians. The Arcadians include the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they dominate the region of Mesopotamia from the beginning of written history, which is uh, 3100 BCE, thereabouts, all the way to the fall of Babylon, which is in 539 BCE, when it was conquered by the Persians, otherwise known as the Achaemenid Empire. So that's quite a big period of time we're talking about around mm-hmm. two and a half thousand years. So when I give you this information, bear in mind <laughs> that it yeah. is spanning a very large period of history and I'm going to make a lot of generalizations and I might say some things that are actually Sumerian when they could have been Arcadian. But anyway, that's where we're at. Um, I don't think I'll notice, don't worry. <laughs> I just felt like you might pick me up on it. Um, it is awkward, but... awkward yeah. <laughs> Always awkward, someone will. But um, just because we know about them from written history doesn't mean that they weren't around before then. So Mesopotamia is the site of the earliest developments of the Neolithic Revolution. So that's from around 10,000 BCE. The the Neolithic Revolution is when we go from being hunter-gatherers to starting to cultivate things and settle down. So it's been identified as having inspired some of the most important developments in human history. Um, The invention of the wheel the planting of the first cereal crops, the development of cursive script, mathematics, astronomy, agriculture, all of this comes from then and there. So it's the earliest civilizations to ever exist in the world. That's where we're at. Couldn't go much further back in terms of our beer history. Um, I'm going to show you the next image. Um, And don't worry, like I've I've shown you the worst of it. Obviously, I started off with the worst bit. Um, (laughs) These links, by the way, to these images, I will put them in the show notes so our listeners can uh, have a look as well because it's all openly available from the British Museum. 
Oh, wow. I like so this. I'm drinking through a much smaller metal straw. Yeah. Mm. But the one you uh, saw in the first image would possibly be something along these lines, although this one is particularly grand. It's one mm-hmm. meter long, this drinking straw. Drinking straws would usually have been made from reeds. This one has a silver tube, and then wrapped around it is gold and lapis lazuli, which is like a deep blue, beautiful color. It's um, fancy. It is very fancy, um, and that's because it was royal. It was of royal use. I will get to that in a minute. Um, since the beer drinking, we have chemical evidence of, of leftover bits of beer, beer drinking from over 5,000 years ago. But it's likely um, that it, it came earlier from semi-nomadic people during the Neolithic Revolution. I think I mentioned this before, actually, on maybe the yeast episode. Beer was extremely popular and extremely important because it's rich in protein, vitamins, carbs. It was much safer than water. You find that throughout history, to be honest. At this point, we're talking about it was made when it was made. It was quite soupy, so they used a straw not just for lols, but because it could filter <laughs> out the barley husks. So the barley husks would um, kind of float on top of the soupy mix, if you like. So it makes sense to have a straw to drink from the bottom, so it filters that out. Um, it also meant that with these very long straws and with the large pots, it was very much a shared experience. You would drink beer in this way on social occasions. They did have cups as well. It wasn't always through a straw. They had cups for everyday use uh, because people were given daily rations of beer for their work. You get about half a gallon of beer um, and half a gallon of barley, because I had a lot of barley, per day for the average worker. And it would go up to 62 gallons uh, a month for for paid workers or skilled workers, as it it were, who would then maybe sell on their excess if they didn't want it. And then the young workers, the children, um, and also older people would get less than that, would get a few rations. But the kids would still get beer. (laughs) Yeah, everyone drank beer every day, all the time, no matter your place in society. It was, it was, you know, it's like us drinking water. It was that. So there, there have been kind of, there have been conversations and debates about what the strength of the beer would be. The truth is we don't know. But because everyone drank it all the time, including children, a lot of academics are quite tempted to say, well, it couldn't have been that strong then. But I'm always suspicious of arguments like that because that's putting our own social attitudes onto yeah, the way they should have different. been behaving. Like, oh, children drank it, drank it all the time, so it can't have been strong. But... I see no reason for that to be the case. You know, they, they could have been drinking the same strength beer as mm-hmm. us and letting children have it. And, you know, they had, uh, they had a very different social context. So I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, okay, I'm going to show you uh, next image as well. In this image that's coming up, this is taken from a cylinder seal. Uh, mm-hmm. made of lapis lazuli in this case they they weren't necessarily um a cylinder seal so it's it's like it sounds it's a, it's a cylinder but when you roll it along something like wax or clay for example it prints mm-hmm. out an image so a kind of if you if you imagine like a, a tapestry image for example and you could keep rolling it out so that's where this comes from and the design here is divided into two parts um, both showing banquet scenes. 
So above, there's a figure that stands before a seated person who's drinking from a goblet. And then there's two seated figures drinking from a straw from a large vessel. Mm-hmm. And then below, there's a man standing before maybe a table and there's a pot bearer um, who's um, before a seated dignitary. And there's a cup mm-hmm. bearer before another seated person. And those seated figures on both of those consist of a man and a woman. And the woman, we think, is probably the queen at the time, who was called Puabi. And that is partly because of, you know, this elaborate banquet scene. It's partly because we actually found it in her tomb, or near her tomb. So there was this this elaborate straw. There was this cylinder seal. um, Lots of drinking vessels. Lots of cups and bowls and things because they thought it would give you fun in the afterlife, like you would take it with you. And their idea of hell was people like not having beer and society and, you know, not having this new civilization. They also found the most fabulous um, headdress, like uh, clothing that went with it. So it was like golden, um, it was all uh, gold and beads and jewelry, this kind of fancy pick out headdress. Um, they had gold ribbons that would have um, woven through, I was saying a hair, but probably a wig, actually. Um, the mm-hmm. the cape was all beaded with stones. She would have a golden belt. Um, so very, very, very fancy. But it's interesting that, you know, when uh, I think burials that come a bit later, you know, particularly, I think, after, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you think about Viking burials or Anglo-Saxon or whatever, they're often uh, buried with weaponry and stuff. Here, it's more important to have a good time. Be buried with your straws and your bowls and all your drinking things to make sure you can keep having <laughs> beer. It's not very, uh, it's not very Mardi Gras. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Mm. Also, the um, the cup bearer down the bottom right looks mm-hmm. remarkably like Dobby the house elf. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. the The figurative work is quite house elf. <laughs> another thing actually you might notice from um that i wasn't going to say but on on the seals here you can see that they're wearing fringed skirts so yeah. the men the men wore skirts and in this case they're fringed and i forget which one is which but like in the in the north they would have had fringed skirts and in the south they wouldn't and you can see regional differences in the way uh, people are portrayed by kind of the fringing on their costume um another thing that was found alongside all this um and this was a great excavation um at a site called Ur. They found a game, which is now generally known as the game of Ur. And the game is like it's a bit like backgammon um or mm-hmm. Ludo or something like that. You know, you move along spaces, you play against one of their opponents, and if they land on top of you, your piece goes back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um and we know that that's how it's played because there's a clay tablet of the rules that survived. Nice. Which is incredible um so you can actually uh, another thing you can do at the british museum is go on their youtube and actually watch people playing the game of her they've got like the the, the specialist in the cuneiform language who, who deciphered mm. uh, deciphered the rules and says well we think it plays like this mm. um and we also know that from the original game it, it actually spread quite far throughout the Assyrian Empire for example and it took on some superstitious significance as well which is written in another tablet of Itimarduk Balatu which gives some predictions for um, 
the futures of the players when they're playing it when you land on certain spaces i imagine it's actually quite tongue-in-cheek i don't think it was serious but it would say things like if you land on this square you will find a friend if you land on this one you will become powerful like a lion and crucially if you land on this one you will draw fine beer yes (laughs) so it was probably a drinking game yeah (laughs) if you okay Start to put all these things together. We know that they drank socially out of these big pots. We've seen depictions of them sitting around drinking together. We know they had a board game next to them when they were doing this. Does this not just sound like going to the pub? I mean, it sounds like what we do every time we hang out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they've had music as well. They ha- We know they had lyres um, that would be played as well. Mm-hmm. So kind of very much setting the scene of a, of a Mesopotamian pub. And over in the corner, there's a woman getting banged while she drinks a beer getting taken from behind while she is necking while she, yeah while she's chinning it <laughs> i think to be fair they've won up our pubs there <laughs> yeah they have it's been a while since i've seen one of those not never but a while um <laughs> from chemical evidence and written recipes as well we know that they ate lots of grains nuts and fruit mm-hmm. in particular barley and wheat for bread and beer We also have an ancient dictionary, which compares Sumerian and Arcadian terms, which is how we know that there were over 300 terms for bread. Which I think is very tempting to want to eat all of those. Yeah. We don't know. Should I put that on the list? Yeah, I'm putting it on the list. (laughs) Yeah, go to ancient Mesopotamia, eat bread. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't know the recipes for them. Um, we just know the names, but it probably would have involved things like the addition of olive or sesame oil, different sizes and shapes, different grains, or adding fruit. So they would eat bread every day, but different types of bread. And they also ate loads of chickpeas for their protein because they didn't really farm the animals so much. They might have done some wild hunting, but mostly they relied on chickpeas. Or if there had been an infestation of locusts that ruined the crop that year they just eat the locusts which is such a practical solution (laughs) well these are the stories you hear about famine when you know locusts come in and eat the crops like just eat the locusts um locusts taste like well apparently they're they're a bit nutty aren't they they're kind of like crunchy and nutty and stuff when they're fried i have heard uh we know that wine was consumed but in much smaller quantities than beer. And we have written records that it was imported as well. And they even came with notes on the region and the vintage, just as we would today. Um, It's generally reserved for rulers, and they would offer it to other rulers as gifts for making an alliance. Um, They also drank beer too, so wine never replaced the way they would drink beer and the volume they would drink beer but it's just interesting that the evidence we have for wine is that it was mostly kind of given as given between rulers as gifts and noted for fancy vintages and saved for important occasions um ice as well they had ice with their drinks so an ice house was also found in the 18th century bce uh, palace with an inscription that said simri lin was the builder of this ice house which no previous king had built that was on the banks of the Euphrates. But we do know that his predecessor wrote a lot about food and drink. So what were his favourite things to consume? And he also liked to drink with ice and use it to preserve food. So he said the ice would be brought down from the mountains and then cleaned before use. There is 
a poem or, or a hymn, I suppose, from 1800 BCE that explains that grain was converted into bread before it was fermented. So they would always make bread first, which makes you think maybe they'd make the bread, eat whatever bread they wanted, and then use the leftovers, perhaps, for making mm-hmm. beer. Um, and they used grapes as well as wild honey because they didn't. There was no beekeeping um, in this society. They would add that to the mix. They also, but they cultivated loads and loads of dates, so they would definitely have gone in uh, to flavour the beer. Plus apples, pears, pomegranates, and figs. So probably they'd have been added as flavouring sometimes as well. So I am going to read you this poem um, or this this hymn, uh, but first I have to introduce who it's to, who is Ninkasi. Ninkasi is the goddess of beer in ancient Sumerian uh, religious mythology. So her father, Ninkasi's father, was the king of Uruk, um, or Iraq, as we would know it. And her mother was the high priestess of the temple of Inanna, or Inanna is sometimes known as Ishtar, who's the goddess of procreation. She later becomes Aphrodite in Greece, or Venus in Rome. It's kind of Mm -hmm. that, that, that level of powerful goddess. But Ninkasi was uh, also born of sparkling fresh water, and she's the goddess that's made to satisfy the desire and sate the heart, and her job was to prepare the beer daily. So here is the 4,000-year-old hymn to Ninkasi, um, which is I've slightly edited. Given birth by the flowing water, X, there are some bits that are missing, something, Tenderly cared for by Nin Husaja, having founded your town upon wax, she completed its great walls for you. Your father is Enki, the Lord Nudimud, and your mother is Ninti, the Queen of the Abzu. It is you who handle the something and dough with a big shovel, mixing in a pit the beer bread with sweet aromatics. It is you who bake the beer bread in the big oven and put in order the piles of hulled grain. It is you who water the earth-covered malt. The noble dogs guard it, even from the potentates. It is you who soak the malt in a jar. The waves rise, the waves fall. It is you who spread the cooked mash on large reed mats. Coolness overcomes. It is you who hold with both hands the great sweet wort, brewing it with honey and wine. You, something, the sweet wort, to the vessel. You place the fermenting vat, which makes a pleasant sound, appropriately on top of a large collector vat. It is you who pour out the filtered beer of the collector vat. It is like the onrush of the Tigris and the Euphrates. I can't think of a grander way to describe (laughs) beer making than all of those proclamations. (laughs) But it's got this um, repetitive nature to it which suggests mm. that the main purpose of this was a tool to uh, to pass down the information as a way of learning how how to make beer. And, you know, they probably would have sung it as they were doing it as well. And also, it, you know, it being in Cassie, it being a goddess, it suggests that this was also a role for women in the city. So we've seen it in other cultures as well, but it was probably true right from the beginning that um, the brewing was uh, a woman's job generally. And in fact, we have a seal... You know, like I told you about the cylinder seals earlier. Um, so they acted like someone's signature. So if they were taking orders and making proclamations or whatever it was, you would take your seal and just sort of roll it uh, on the clay tablet and it would say, okay, well, this person's now seen it because it's very personal to you when you get it made. So we have a seal from a woman who was the head of the kitchen for the royal palace 
She was called Amaduga. And she started this role under Yasma Adad, who was the ruler who wrote a lot about all the things he liked to eat um, and, you know, bring ice down from the mountains. And her seal tells us this, but actually she keeps that seal throughout her whole life, even when she starts working under the next ruler, Simrilin, where she's um, she maintained her role as the head of the kitchen. So she must have been really good at her job to kind of go through multiple rulers. They didn't, you know, change their staff or bring in new people. But it would have been um, enormously difficult job, I think, to, to monitor all those orders because of the size of some of the banquets that they had to uh, do. So um, we have this record from the 9th century BCE of one of the royal banquets that said it was for just under 70,000 people. It lasted for 10 days. Um, and it was inviting the locals, broader Assyrians, and also foreign ambassadors, because it was used very much to kind of, you know, create alliances. And they had 10,000 jars of beer, but we don't know how big a jar was. I think a jar of beer is probably that big pot, because this is a social occasion. So it's not like glasses, it would be a lar- very large amount of beer. 10,000 containers of wine, dancing, acrobats, and musicians. So if you think about how much beer would be needed for an occasion like this, it makes you think that it's not just a domestic thing. Like they're not just making it in their homes. It's very possible that they would have made this on an almost industrial scale. And there wasn't a huge amount of evidence for this other than kind of it would be logical. Until only a few weeks ago, they found uh, an industrial sized brewery in Egypt. Um, Abydos, I think it is. And they were like, yep, it could easily make that amount of beer um, in a week. So we're talking very vast amounts of brewing. Um, Here's another drinking song uh, that goes along with this. So this again is repeated, but I've cut it down. May the heart of your God be well disposed towards you. Let the eye of the gackle vat be our eye. And let the heart of the gackle vat be our heart. What makes your heart feel wonderful in itself also makes our hearts feel wonderful in themselves. We are in a happy mood. Our hearts are joyful. You have poured a libation over the fated brick and you have laid the foundations in peace and prosperity. Now may Ninkasi dwell within you. She should pour beer and wine for you. Let the pouring of the sweet liquor resound pleasantly for you. In the troughs made with burgrass there is sweet beer. I will have the cupbearers, the boys and the brewers stand by. As I spin around the lake of beer while feeling wonderful, feeling wonderful, while drinking beer in a blissful mood, while drinking alcohol and feeling exhilarated, with joy in the heart and a contented liver, my heart is a heart filled with joy. I clothe my contented liver in a garment fit for a queen. The heart of Inanna is happy once again. The heart of Inanna is happy once again. They love beer is what I'm saying. I know. I, I like how just, yeah. I'm I'm really relating with all of this. <laughs> Particularly the line as I spin around the lake of beer. I mean, I just quite enjoyed the happy liver as well. Yeah, the lies, the lies about the, the contented <laughs> liver. Um, so it, it, it's incredible that we. I think you can get such a strong sense of, um. You know, their, their approach to beer, their approach to, more importantly, getting together as a group of people and sharing this common experience. You've got to remember this is all coming out of, I said, the Neolithic Revolution, where 
they didn't have permanent homesteads or things like this or perhaps as strong cultures so you really see it kind of using this as its central focus really i mean there were religions as well sure (laughs) but actually a lot of the temples were responsible for you know um gathering food and then giving it back out again so it's not necessarily kind of the same approach to religions we would think of now it's definitely centered around activities like this um, as you might expect, the name Ninkasi, the, the Sumerian goddess of beer, has been appropriated for various beers and breweries. Um, I'm not going to go through them because it's been used so many times. But if you want to just look up Ninkasi and beer, you will find any number of special edition beers and breweries if you want to celebrate that goddess. Um, and you'll know now where it comes from and maybe sing one of the songs. <laughs> and on that note, I'm uh, going to get to suck in my own beer. Is it true it gets you drunk quicker when you drink through a straw? I'll let Is you that know. just a myth that um, they tell you? I think it's a myth. I think it stemmed from the idea that you're getting um, less oxygen or something along with mm-hmm. it. But I don't, I don't know. It's, it's the alcohol you drink that gets you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you. My turn. Um, as per, I left the history to you. <laughs> Sure. Uh, I looked at some more modern day options um, and I found a drink called Arak, spelt A-R-A-K. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a Levantine translucent unsweetened distilled spirit. Um, because I'm excellent at geography, I didn't really know what Levantine was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Levant um, is an, it's an approximate geographical term um, covers a really large area of the eastern Mediterranean region of Western Asia. So in its narrowest sense it's equivalent to the historical region of Syria which includes modern day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, most of Turkey. Um, That's about it really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that area that's where this Iraq drink is from. So Iraq is the Arabic word for perspiration, which from the off is a bit like, hmm, nice. <laughs> um, so as soon as I tell you what family the uh, Arak spirit is in, you'll have a good idea of what it's like. It is in the Anise family. Mm-hmm. So licorice goodness. Um, so it's made from two ingredients grapes and aniseed uh, it's quite strong I think it is actually the strongest of the anise family drinks it's between 40 to 60% proof um, and again there were also lists about if you make it at home that rises up to 95% <laughs> um, so to drink it it's traditionally mixed with water um, one part arak and two parts water it's served in a vessel called an eye brick, which is, you'll have seen them, they're like little copper pots with long handles. Quite traditionally, you see tea and things served in them. Um, yeah. But the um, arak is also served in them. Uh, now, it's served with ice, but they're very particular in the way that you serve it. You do not add the ice to the alcohol. You pour the alcohol over the ice. 
that is something to do with the oils and stuff that are contained in the spirit. If you were to do it the other way round, it creates a really nasty um, film on the top of the drink. Um, the oils solidify um, and it just creates this... It's just not nice. <laughs> uh, so okay. for for that reason, when you order um, Arak in a restaurant, um, the waiter will bring several cups per person um, because, again, the, the cup will become quite cold after you've had your ice and your drink in there. So if you're pouring it into the same cup, which is cooled a little bit, you'll still have that solidification happening. Um, it also rang a bell when you were mentioning earlier about the in the images there were lots of cups and lots of drinking vessels so it's quite mm -hmm. nice that that is still a sim similar scene when you're drinking that um it's often served with food yeah it's always served with food from what i could gather it's not just something you'd sit and drink by itself it's quite potent it's quite strong um so it's traditionally served with a meze so you'll have lots of food with it um to make Arak, um, it starts obviously with the vineyards. For a really good quality grape, they need to be mature and golden. Um, and instead of irrigated, the vines are left to the care of the climate. Uh, they've naturally got a good amount of sun, a good amount of rain. Uh, in September, October time, that's when they'll harvest the grapes. The grapes will be crushed and placed in a barrel with the juice and they'll be left to ferment for around three weeks. Occasionally they'll stir it just to let the CO2 out, but other than that, they don't do much with it. They'll then distill it in stills. They'll either use steel or copper stills, but apparently copper stills are the most sought after because they produce the most, the better quality um, liquor that can be sold on for a lot more. So the alcohol that's collected in the first distillation will undergo a second distillation that's when the aniseed is mixed in uh, the ratio again of the alcohol to aniseed is very varied i think it is personal preference but it also dictates the quality of the final product so i think they like it quite potent they like a strong licorice taste so um, the final distill uh, distillation is done at the lowest possible temperature and then it's not quite ready to drink then. It has to be aged in clay amphoras um, where the angel's share will evaporate. Mm -hmm. And then it's ready to drink. Um, as I mentioned, it's traditionally drunk with just water and ice. It's very strong. So there's not many kind of suggestions of cocktails and things out there. <laughs> um, but they've said if you did kind of want to go down that route um, it's normally kind of orange juice lemon flavors things that complement the licorice but because it's the strongest of the anise family spirits it tends to overpower everything so you might as well just drink it with water and suck it up <laughs> stab it suck it up just have it <laughs> I think that's why I wanted a cup of tea as well, because I just, I'm not a fan of the old licorice myself. You couldn't, so. you couldn't handle that today. Yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah, I was looking at photos of it online as well. It, it looks nice because obviously, it's it when it's got like this tran lovely translucent look about it. When you add the water, it gives it that mm -hmm. nice milky 
look. So it does look appetizing. It didn't look like just a shot of Sambuca or something. <laughs> Good. Hmm. Good. So does it have that sort of louche effect then? Yeah, that's like exactly it. it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Give it a go. Give the only reason go. I didn't do the whole louche thing is because we covered that in the absinthe episode, but that's exactly what happens. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Oh, well, you see, I learned. I learned from that. That's why I know it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so listen, I can't talk about ancient Mesopotamia without talking about one of the oldest stories that we know, written mm-hmm. stories that we have in existence, which is that of Gilgamesh. So I thought I'd end my section by doing a very condensed (laughs) version of Gilgamesh in relevance to drinking, of which there is a little bit. Are you trying to tell me that Gilgamesh isn't just a restaurant bar in Camden? I'm afraid not. You're going to have to chalk that up with all the other kebab places that are really gods. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) But there's always going to be a bar or restaurant named after something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Gilgamesh is at least 4,000 years old as a story. Um, I mean, it wasn't long ago we were doing, you know, the episodes on Dionysus and and ancient Greece and stuff. And we're saying how ancient that is, but we're talking about things that are about 400 BCE. So just putting it in context of how old um, these things are. We only discovered it, though. Um, thanks to 19th century excavations at Nineveh, which is near Mosul, where they found 20,000 of these clay tablets of cuneiform writing. Um, And then that led to essentially the founding of a seriology where we were like, what is cuneiform? (laughs) Because I didn't know. So I don't know if you've ever seen it, but cuneiform is, is basically a series of sort of slightly wedged lines and so if you imagine you would have like a wooden stick and you press into a wet clay tablet, you get one end that's slightly faster and one end that's slightly narrower. And they would just do that in different directions. And then that formed kind of this, this cursive script of cuneiform. It's very pretty. Um, so amongst, uh, amongst that, we had uh, Georgie Smith in 1866, who is the guy employed by the British Museum to figure out how to read cuneiform. He was the one who, who figured it out. And that included uh, the Gilgamesh tablets. I say the, there are many (laughs) Gilgamesh tablets and stories of Gilgamesh tablets from different periods of time and different geographies because it was this famous story that got retold. But this was kind of like the main one, and in particular what's called the Flood Tablet, uh, which tells the story of the great flood that wiped out humanity. So there are flood stories from... I think almost any culture um, and in all these great flood stories it's mostly um, the gods wanting to wipe out humans because they're, they're being too noisy they're too loud <laughs> and it's too overpopulated that's the main reason they're just slightly miffed so they want to kill us all rather than what you get for example in like the, the Christian um, uh, 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 and Jewish floods in the Old Testament where it's more about humans are being too sinful and so they need to wipe it out. This is them just being annoying. <laughs> Sounds about right. Brits on tour. Mm-hmm. My thoughts exactly. Um, in the Mesopotamian version of this this flood story, Enlil, who is a god, he's like the Sumerian god of kings, 
So he's looking after, he's like uh, ruling. He's not like the, the high father. There was another um, high father king called An who was the top of the sky. But Enlil was like, how do we manage all this stuff? He appoints kings and, and rules the gods. But he was the one who wanted the humans destroyed. He starts with a plague, first of all. He sends everyone a plague, but they survive it. Then he sends famine. Uh, and that doesn't work either. And it's because there's a god called Enki, not to be confused later with Enkidu, but Enki, who is the god of the rivers, which obviously were very important to Mesopotamia, being between the rivers. Um, and he was the god also of thought and invention. And he keeps helping the humans to survive because he quite likes them. He's like the closest god to the humans. And Lil forbids him from helping um, when he uh, helping them, you know, telling them about the great flood. But uh, what Enki does is he goes to one man called Utnapishti, who will come back later. And instead of telling him directly, he tells the walls of Utnapishti's house. He talks to the reeds. And he said, so uh, this is going to happen. So if I were you, house, I would um, build an ark or something. Um, so that's what Utnapishti does. He, he builds an ark. There are different versions of the stories as to whether he survives alone or with a wife and family. Um, but usually he's taking kind of seeds and plants and some animals with him as well. Basically Noah, <laughs> uh, if you're more familiar with that story. So that's that's the flood. So Georgie Smith, this guy who's employed by the British Museum to figure all this out, um, is sponsored to go back to Iraq. Um, I think it was a, a British newspaper who sponsored him, actually. It might have been like the Telegraph or something. Um, anyway, he goes out to find even more, more tablets um, and different scripts. He finds a lot of late Babylonian stuff, more flood stories from different epics. He finds 50,000 more tablets. So already by this point, we've got not, we've got 70,000 tablets. They are still being translated today. They have not finished translating all the uh, cuneiform tablets. And in fact, the, the one of the previous times I went there um, a year or two ago, there was an open call to get people to kind of learn how to do it to help them with the translation. Um, so for the story of Gilgamesh that has been um, put together, it mostly comes from the library of a, a, an Assyrian king who called himself king of the world because at this point the Assyrian empire was enormous and very powerful. He's called Ashurbanipal. Um, Ashurbanipal's library actually exists intact so well because um, towards the end of his reign, he was attacked and his library was burned down. So kind of like, you know, the Library of Alexandria was destroyed and we lost so many things, which, you know, probably would have been very, uh, we would consider ahead of the times in terms of science and mathematics and philosophy and all this sort of stuff. In this case, they tried to burn it down, but because they were clay tablets, it actually baked them. So they ah. were preserved as a result of the act of vandalism. And that's the reason why they're so well preserved. So that was great. Clever, yeah. Mm. So mostly using these pieces, um, a first modern language translation was put together in 1912. So it came from various sources, which means it still gets revised now and then. We get new versions all the time from piecing together different bits. But it's this Babylonian poem of a demigod hero known as Gilgamesh, who is the king of Uruk, now Iraq. Um, at the start of the story, he is strong, powerful, beautiful, but uses all of that a bit indiscriminately. He's a bit of a tyrant. The people don't like him because he keeps wandering around trying to fight everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, the impudence of youth and all that. Um, so they sort of 
pray, they appeal to the gods to do something about him because they're not happy. And the gods are displeased with him as well. They decide what he needs is someone who can match him in strength and energy and wanting to go on adventures. So they create Enkidu, not Enki, Enkidu, who is the man of the wild. He, you know, exists in the forest. He's very uncivilized. You know, he doesn't live in, in the city. Um, and he's lured to the city initially by a prostitute on behalf of the townsfolk. Wants to lure him in and sort of say, here's the city. Here's how it all works. Here's beer. Do me up the bum, etc. Um <laughs> Through his introduction to, you know, the city and civilization, he hears about Gilgamesh and the initial intent is to, you know, go and fight him as sort of stand up for the townsfolk. But um, no one wins this fight. Instead, they just make friends. Um, they not only make friends, they become lovers. Um, and they decide. To, yes, exactly. The first story is the story of um, uh, <laughs> a tyrant king and a man of the wild getting it on. Uh, <laughs> So they go on these adventures, including to a cedar forest where they meet um, a tree monster called Krumbaba. They slay the monster, they cut the, the trees down, and they use it to build a temple for Enlil. So even though they're doing this in favour of the gods, also Krumbaba was put into the forest by the gods to protect the trees. So it's a bit like, what was the right thing to do there? Um, <laughs> the goddess Ishtar... Um, as I said, kind of this very powerful, you know, goddess that becomes Aphrodite and Venus of love, is impressed with Gilgamesh and falls in love with him. But he turns down her wedding offer. Um, he says words to the effect of, nobody but a fool would marry a prostitute like you. Which, Gosh. you know, is not the most tactful way to let down a powerful goddess of love. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> she returns to the gods and asks them to turn all of humanity into, uh, for want of a better term, zombies. <laughs> but okay. the gods don't want to do that, so they decide to send down a bull to attack um, Enkidu and Gilgamesh. But instead, Enkidu and Gilgamesh slay the bull, <laughs> and they're bragging about being more powerful than the gods and all that sort of stuff. So Gilgamesh has not learned his lesson. They've caused more carnage, and so the gods decide that the man they created for him now must die. So they give Enkidu an illness, and he does indeed die after 12 days. Gilgamesh violently mourns Enkidu. It's an entire chapter um, of, of these tablets where he's uh, crying and wailing and tearing his hair out and all this sort of stuff. Um, it's also, you know, the first time that Gilgamesh has really faced mortality. Um, and, you know, lo with losing a love, he becomes very different. He becomes a more anxious person. He's scared of his own death. So he goes in search of immortality. So he's heard of an immortal living on the edge of the world and wants to know how it's achieved because he doesn't want to have to go through that pain again or, or indeed lose his own life. He journeys, this is a short version, he journeys to the end of the world. At the end of the world, he first meets an alewife or a tavern keeper called Siduri. And she asks, you know, what are you doing? He says he's looking for the immortal man. And she says, well, why don't you just go home and enjoy your life and not bother with this? It's a futile attempt. We are meant to live. We are meant to die. Have a beer. Chill out about it. <laughs> I like her. Chill. Stop a beer. Yep. Yeah, thanks, Sidori. It's the earliest example, obviously, by far, of the wisdom of a barkeep, which is a recurring literary theme. 
but it's just amongst all this kind of journeying and end of the world and gods and fantasy and all this sort of stuff and you know tree monsters all of a sudden you've got a barkeep i think it says a lot about kind of about the culture they were in that Mm -hmm. this was probably the last turning point of are you sure you don't just want to be civilized and enjoy yourself um so anyway Gilgamesh doesn't listen he doesn't buy it he goes on eventually to find Utanapishti who was given immortality by the gods because they didn't know what to do with him after he survived the great flood um so he says to Gilgamesh you you cannot be made immortal um he's like you know you won't be able to hack it he said, first of all, why don't you try and, and you will appreciate this moment right now, why don't you try and stay awake for a week and see if you can conquer sleep? And he says, if you can stay awake for one week, I will tell you the secret of immortality. But of course, Gilgamesh has just travelled to the end of the world and he's been through all these adventures and the first thing he does is fall asleep. Oh, man. Um, as a way of actually marking, <laughs> marking the days of how long he's been asleep, um, in some versions, Utanapishti's wife bakes a loaf of bread and just leaves it next to him every day. So when he wakes up, he's like, oh, I've been asleep for a, a week because there's all this bread in front of me. Which That's is so um, passive aggressive. I love it. Yeah. Passive aggressive baking. I'm so in favor of. <laughs> so Utanapishti, you know, after this says to him, ever do we build our households? Ever do we make our nests? Ever do brothers divide their inheritance? Ever do feuds arise in the land. Ever the river has risen and brought us the flood. The mayfly floating on the water. On the face of the sun its countenance gazes. Then all of a sudden nothing is there. Which I think is very beautiful. Mm-hmm. He's trying to say to him, look, you know, the whole point of this is that it all it all ends. It all fades. We have our quarrels. Things are beautiful. Sit still. You know, enjoy it. Let it go. Um, so Gilgamesh is like sort of accepting that he won't receive immortality, but he has spent a lot of years of his life trying to seek it out. As compensation, Utanapishti says, well, I'll tell you where you can find a plant of youth at the bottom of the ocean. So he swims down and he finds it. But, you know, he sort of learned a lesson or two and he wants to take the plant home first and test it on a young man to check that it works. Uh, before he takes it himself on the way back he finds this uh, this pool this lovely pool decides to go and bathe in it he rests the plant by the side of the pool and while he's in there he sees a snake come up and steal it and as the <laughs> snake slithers off it's shedding its skin as it goes so he realizes that the plant did work because of the snake shedding its skin but he also realizes that he's now lost that forever then he goes home And what happens when he gets home? He's tired. He's at peace. He decides that all he wants to do is tell his story. He writes it in stone. That is the end of the epic. It's a slightly muted end, but I think what it really does is... Okay, there, there are lots of themes in this story, and I've only, you know, sort of told part of it. You've got mortality. You've got love. You've got this tension between being part of the city and being part of, um, you know, the, the forest or rural communities. Because as I say, like, a lot of it was, I think, making the case for civilization because it was new. Cities were mm. new. And it was like, 
here's here's what you can achieve if you come and be part of a society you know you can you can join us and in one way you know you live on through being part of that group and we share culture and Mm. you know in a way Gilgamesh it's a story about itself because he eventually achieves immortality we know about him now through the story being told yeah so you know stay home like the tavern keeper said you know tell your story over beer participate in a culture that's about more than yourself and through that you live on don't go solar adventuring looking for immortality that way um so yeah it's 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 you know it's um just this huge story i think about the birth of civilization about people being together and um sharing their stories over beer and you know writing it in stone and um you know all, all those sorts of things but it is there are so many recognizable pieces in it that then bleed into you know the ancient greek epics and to the bible um and all these other stories but it seems like this was the start of it all i had no idea that was the story of gilgamesh mm-hmm yep it's great it's um you know if you can find a good translation i think it's worth a read it's you know it doesn't it doesn't take too long. It's I feel like it's important. It says a lot of important things about where we kind of came from and where we're going to as a as a people, as a civilization. So I do recommend giving it a read. There were a lot of kind of worrying similarities. You said how they sent a plague and then a famine and then the flood. I mean, yeah. we've just completed COVID and then there are <laughs> I mean, and, and the world, the world's on fire. The world's and on fire, the, and then the yeah, so all the There's... all the crops gone, and then the uh, ice sheets have melted. So hello, flood. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, when you read history enough, it all just goes round and round again. So. Um... I wonder what god we've pissed off. Who's doing that? Do you think it's because we've been too noisy? We need to stop doing yeah. karaoke. Enlil has had enough of your bants. He wants <laughs> you to just shh. Maybe if we all just have a quiet day and apologise to Enlil, all this will go back to normal. All right, I'll give that a bash tomorrow. Failing that, just lean into Ninkasi. <laughs> go with <laughs> go with more beer. Drink, drink beers out of pots and have a good time. Those are our two options, essentially. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll try the quietness first, and then I'll have a word of Chris about the other one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love ancient Mesopotamia, and I could... Um, talk about lots of other things that are not relevant to um drinking but i won't uh (laughs) trying to keep trying to keep the edit a little tight as ever um anything kind of final you want to throw in i did actually spot um quite an interesting article um when i was searching for kind of like modern iraq drinks drinking culture in iraq etc etc it's just really interesting because it was only written a couple of months ago, this piece, about um, a bar in Baghdad. Um, in central Baghdad, there is um, a very, very secret bar. Um, obviously, Iraq is a Muslim country, so the majority of people there don't drink, but there are still people there that do drink, and it's not completely forbidden. So this chap has a bar there, and um, it's all obviously very hush-hush, because... <clears throat> The shops that kind of sell alcohol are often targeted, they're bombed because people are just very angry about them being there. 
Um, so obviously this bar is kept very quiet. Um, clientele are generally <clears throat> people like Westerners with kind of jobs over there that are kind of doctors or lawyers, things like that. Um, and obviously they want a bar to go and sit in and drink. And this chap has opened this bar and he doesn't advertise it. It's all done by word of mouth. Um, it's, it's hidden away in the centre of Baghdad, just behind a big steel door. And um, if you do get to hear about it and you want to go, you have to personally contact this guy who owns it. Um, you have to give him a text and kind of explain why why you want to go there, who's told you about it. Um, you'll give your name, so then obviously when you get there and knock on the door, the security will have to take your name, verify who you are, thoroughly check that you've got no weapons or anything on you, and then you can just go in and have a drink. Um, I just thought, God, it's, it's mad to think that there is a pub <laughs> in central Baghdad right now that I did wonder, you know, it's I, I appreciate it has to be kept very quiet, but what's it doing on the Guardian website right now? <laughs> it's not really <laughs> right. much of a secret, but they obviously didn't say the name of the bar or where it is or anything like that, but mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, I mean, the contrast between my version of events and your version of events, <laughs> you know, through, through that period of history is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey, isn't it? It's crazy, um, yeah. You know, because you mentioned as well, obviously, the, the the devastation that happened in recent years around Iraq. I thought I'd just throw in as well, because obviously a lot of the information, images I said, came from the British Museum. And I know there are some people who, whenever you say British Museum and talk about history from abroad, people mm-hmm. are like, oh, we stole it. But um, there are some really good stories about how the British Museum has been working with um, archaeologists and historians in Iraq to do this work and to tell their story and their history because when the Iraq Museum was um, you know destroyed um, during uh, during all that all that thing that happened there um, you know they they managed a lot of the amazing um, curators managed to smuggle items out and get them to the British Museum for example for for safekeeping um, and the British Museum is training them up now in modern day to kind of restart that work and to continue you know researching their own histories and there's a lot of goodwill between those those museums and those people and they've done a lot of preservation work and a lot of empowerment work and you know it's 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 never as simple as we're we've stolen someone else's history you just got to make sure you tell it in the right way and you work with the people it involves so there are lots of good stories from Iraqi curators about what the British Museum is doing on covering the history of Mesopotamia. And I would suggest if anyone's sort of in doubt about the, the ethics of this housing cuneiform tablets and stuff to go and look at that. It's been a very serious right. podcast. I've enjoyed it. It was right. We got, mm-hmm. we got into it, didn't we? I mean, well, you say it's been very serious. I mean, we started ridiculous and then I ended very sober. So that makes yeah. a change for us. <laughs> <laughs> I should drink tea more often. <laughs> Quite. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to suck beer through a giant straw while we. No, never mind. Cheers, everybody. Or land or sea or fall You can always hear me singing this song Show me the way to go Chris <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready
ready. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs Pornhub when you've got clay tablets? <laughs> Filth. <laughs> uh, right, it's going to stop.